Please do turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 17. We continue our studies this morning in verses 22 and 23. Our subject is God's perfect love. God's indescribable love. His infinite, his eternal love. I read verses 22 and 23 in John 17, the great prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to his heavenly Father. He is co-equal. He is God, but he is also man. And he prays in a very intimate, a very personal way, and an astonishingly powerful way, and a profound way. Verse 22, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. God's perfect and indescribable love. Before we come to that subject, we have, well, can I say, a most profound subject. The glory of the Father. The glory of the Father that was given to the Son. The Son already had glory, but when he came man, when he was begotten of the Father, when he laid aside aspects of his glory, he comes and prays the Son that he would have that glory again, that he who was co-equal with the Father would have that glory complete. While he was man, there were certain aspects when he took on a human body, flesh, that he had to put to one side. He was God. He always was God. But now he has a fleshly form. And so he prays, for the glory that was given to him to be given again in its entirety when he ascends to the Father. Well, our minds are a bit stretched. They're a bit limited. This is the way I feel when I think of the glory of God in all its infinity, eternity, We can't describe in words which are adequate. We take the hymn writer who said this, O Lord, enlarge our scanty thought to know the wonders thou hast wrought. Is there a greater wonder that God, who is infinite, eternal, incapable of being measured, can become a human being. 
that stretches my mind. O O Lord, enlarge our scanty thought to know the wonders thou hast wrought, the wonder of God become man, begotten of the Father, the wonders of creation. Unloose our stammering tongues to tell thy love, immense, unsearchable, the glory of God. Let's just think about this for a few minutes. The glory. Do you know we have to resort to analogies, to pictures, to representations, to likenesses. We think of a glorious sunset. Even the most hardened atheist stands and looks and sees the orange and the purple and the pink, the colors like a mixing board going up and down, and we gaze. We just see something of the glory of God. It's a reflected glory. That's not God's glory, but it's a little bit like it. A reflected glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. We think of all the created glories. Something lives in every hue. Christless eyes have never seen. When we go looking, we see astonishing things. But they're just a small representation. They are created glories. But when we come to God, he is the uncreated glory. He didn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He's not made. He is. He was. He always will be. The uncreated glory of God. The word glory in Greek is the word doxa, doxology. Something worthy of Praise, something which is full of splendor, worthy of honor, something that we should rightly put a value on, admire, and say this is splendid, magnificent. That's the Greek word in the New Testament. But there's another word in the Old Testament, it's the word kabod, it's the Hebrew word. I don't like to mention Greek and Hebrew because I don't know it overly well, but it has significance. Glory, doxa, New Testament, it means something so magnificent. And the Old Testament word, kabod, means weight, depth, gravity, something that's so significant. There's a heaviness to it. Something that's to be revered. That's the best I can do to explain the two words that the Bible uses for glory. We speak of the God of glory. The King of glory. Do you have some comprehension of what God's glory is like? We describe it as being like a fire. The glory comes down. It's like a cloud in the temple. The glory of the Lord fills the whole temple. And the people can't see, 
because the temple is so filled with the glory of God. There's a majesty, there's a weight, and the people look, they stand there, they're amazed. It's just a picture. What about the fire? There's a sacrifice given. In fact, there's tens of thousands of animals sacrificed on the day that the temple was dedicated. And what happened? A fire took them up, destroyed. Perfection. Yes, death. But now there will be life. That's the glory of God. That's something of what it does. So we think, first of all, if you're taking notes, it's a good thing to do. The children do it. I encourage you to take one of those sheets and to record and to help you to follow. The first point, a glory given. And the glory which thou gavest me. This is the glory. Of course, Christ had glory. It wasn't diminished. He didn't get rid of it. He always has the glory. But in order to become fully man and fully God, he can no longer use all of his powers because that would mean he was no longer a man. And so he is the God-man. Well, let me tell you an illustration. Have you heard of the classical classical composer Haydn or Hayden H-A-Y-D-N he was sitting as a very elderly man he was in the Vienna music hall and he wrote a wonderful piece of music called The Creation it's a piece of music that puts to words and the music amplifies God's Creation. He composed it in 1797. And one day in that great music hall in Vienna, it was being performed. He was wheeled in on a wheelchair. He was very frail. He was unable to stand for very long due to his age and infirmity. And this work was being played and performed by this majestic orchestra, and they got to the bit where the words were, and there was light. So tremendous was the emotion. Music can be something that moves the emotions in a good way, and also in a very bad way. This emotion was thinking of the glory of creation. And the chorus of the choir and the orchestra, they burst forth with such power, the crowd, the congregation, could no longer control themselves. They became overcome. And the assembly rose. Everybody in the congregational hall, the music hall, rose spontaneously. And they looked at this man. In the wheelchair, sat there in the gallery, everybody could see him. Here's this great composer. And Hayden managed, or Haydn managed to stand up for 30 seconds. And he gestured with his hand. 
And he said and pointed, him, 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 not me, not me, not me. It comes from him. You see the glory that we see in this world. It originates, it has its source in God. What do we say in the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What are your blessings this morning? Where are you deriving them from? Do they come from God? If you have blessings from God, you are truly blessed. If they come from material things, they'll rust, they'll vanish, they might be taken away, they might be lost. Don't derive your blessings from anything else but from God, from whom all blessings flow. Well, we can think of the glory of God. The Bible uses phrases like this, God is glorious in his holiness. That's profound. When they gave the sacrifices, just think of that great time when Elijah went up the mountain and the fire came down. God was pleased and he consumed the sacrifice that had been given. It was a mark of his blessing, the holiness of God, glorious in holiness. We think of him as being perfect in his person, perfect in his attributes, perfect in his truth, perfect in his laws, preeminent in honor. This is the glory of God. It's rooted and founded in truth, revealed to us in God's word. It is the outpouring, the revealing, the demonstration of what God is like. That is the glory. We read, the glory of God which was given to Christ. How should we respond? To a sense, a glimpse, a shaft of light that gives us an understanding of the glory of God. That's what we need. Your life won't be the same if you understand the glory of God. This is how we respond. Ascribe greatness to our God. Ascribe the worth, the glory, the praise that God is worthy of. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given to them. That's wonderful. God is glorious. He doesn't need anything else. Glory emanates from his person, from his truth, from his being. And something of that glory is given to us through his Son. That's what he's telling us. The glory which was given and made complete again in me, says Christ, I have given to them. A Christian knows something of the glory of God. His greatness, his holiness, his love, 
his mercy. Do you know something of that today? Have you seen the glory of God in your life, in his word? If you know the glory of God, you will seek to live for his glory. Your words will be for his glory. Your life will be for his glory. That will be your supreme objective. Is that true? Or are you living for yourself? Are you living for your name? Are you living for the accumulation of something you can't take with you when you die? The glory given to me, I have given to them. That's our first point. Our second is it speaks here of a perfection made. A perfection, that's what we need. A perfection. Notice how many times it says the word one. They may be perfect in one. Verse 23, go back to verse 22. Even as we, the Father and the Son, are one. And then in the middle of the verse, that they may be one. Oneness. Are you one with God? The Father and the Son, they're one. Are you one with your wife and husband this morning? Are you one, united, nothing between you, no niggles, no arguments that weren't dealt with before you came out this morning? I know this because I have these too. Are you one? Have you come to worship and you're not one? If you're not one with your wife, you cannot be one with Christ. And you will not be one with God. Oneness. A perfection. That's what perfection is. To be united. To be one. Let me explain this as simply as I can. In the word of God, there are four unions referred to. There is that union between the three persons of the Godhead. The Father loves the Son in unbroken love. They are one. They always have been one. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit and the Son, they work together in perfect union and harmony. The Spirit does the work that the, the Son desires the Spirit to do. He comforts, he guides, he convicts. There is perfect union in the three persons of the Trinity. They are one, one God, but three persons in complete agreement. That's what the Word of God teaches. That's what we believe. A union of the Godhead. But there's a second one. Christ has this union, the theological term is the hypostatic union, the union of his two natures, God and man. No conflict, no clash, no disagreement, no argument. That's the second union. The third, 
because of Christ's human nature. Well, because of his human nature, I can be one with Christ. All of his people can be united to the Lord Jesus Christ only because of his work, his finished work on Calvary. Are you united to Christ this morning? That's the question. Are you one with him? The Trinity, one, united. Christ, one in his two wonderful persons, unity, and all of Christ's people, united together in Christ. One, 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 but there's a, a fourth one. There is the unity of all his people. We're to be subject to one another. We don't like that. We don't like to be under the authority of those that God has rightly appointed to be over the rule of us. We don't like to be subject to the person sat next to us. They're not like me. But there is a unity. What does Christ say here? John 17, 22 and 23. He says that they may be one. He doesn't want division. He doesn't want schism. Of course, there can only be unity and oneness in the truth. And we are striving always for a better understanding and a conviction of what is the truth. But this is his prayer. This is his prayer before he goes to Calvary, that they may be one, united, nothing between them, even as we, the Father and the Son, are one. Four unions. It's like a domino effect. Because the Trinity is united, nothing between them, so the Son has this union between his two natures, and so his people can be united to Christ, and so we can be one with one another. It's astonishing, but it's because of Christ's work. Here's me separated from God because of my sin, because of my foolishness, my error, my arrogance. My love of self, I know right. And Christ comes to me. And he says in the gospel, I can be one. And everyone who bows the knee to me through the work of the Holy Spirit alone, not my work, I can be one with Christ. And because of that, in a church and in a family of believers, we can be one with each other, that they may be one. He emphasizes it again. How? Even as we are one, we're united. United by the glory of the Father. And we can be one. That's our second point. That they may be one with this perfect, perfect perfection and union that is described here, the multiple ways that there is union only in God, the domino effect cascading from the unity of the Trinity. But here's 
our third point this morning. Verse 23. How can we know this? How can we, we can be one with Christ? Christ says it in three words. I in them. We only know the unity and the union with God through Christ if Christ lives and dwells within us. And thou in me. Do you see the link? Start from the bottom, me. I in them. I'm part of the church of Jesus Christ, bought by his blood, and Christ dwells within me. He's taken up residence. He's taking away the old nature. He's taking away my pride and arrogance and within me he's developing a, a humility and a love for him and his character and his likeness and as he dwells in me, I in them. So we know something of the Father dwelling in the Son in his human form. And how is this love made known? that they may be made. It's speaking of the future. Yes, legally I'm perfect in Christ. My penalty for my sin is now not held against me. I've been justified. But the work of Christ is to indwell me. What does he say in John 15? Abide in me and I in you. The work of Christ to make me more and more like him through the work of the Holy Spirit. We call it progressive sanctification. I'm a work in progress. I'm not yet what I should be, but praise God. I'm not what I once was. Then we see here this love known, verse 23, that the world, on account of the glory that's been completed and given back to the Son, can we say that reverently? We are one with him, and we have this union in Christ if we know him, and we are being made perfect. And on account of that, the world knows. How does the world know? The church? What's the church? A bunch of weak people who sometimes argue with one another, who sometimes fall into dreadful sin and have to be restored. Backsliders who have to come back to their feet and get on their knees and fall before Christ and say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. What's the church? Well, this church Christ died for. He shed his blood. He loved the church. This church of weak, frail, fallible people that break the hearts of other people, that say the cruelest things, that offend and hurt and cause offense and take offense. This church, the world will know that Christ was sent for his people. 
that the world may know that Christ has been sent, commissioned, authorized, lifted up, exalted, so that the world can look to him and him alone. And look at the final words of verse 23. And hast loved them. Who's the them? The world will know that Christ has been sent. But Christ doesn't love the whole world in a saving way. He loves his people. He loves the ones that he's died for. He loves the ones the Father has given to the Son, and none have been lost. That the world may know that he has been sent and he's loved them, his people. You can't read this chapter in any other way unless you see a distinction between the world which hates God, rejects God, and them, the ones who can have union with him. Christ has come to the world that the world would know. Oh, he's made it so clear, hasn't he? Read the words of Romans 1. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen by the world, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. That's his glory, his person, his Godhead, his power. And they're clearly seen and they're understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. The world has no excuse because God's glory is revealed. It's revealed in creation. It's revealed in Christ. It's revealed in his word. It's revealed in the conscience. No excuse. Because that when they knew God, what does it say? They glorified him not. Anybody that rejects Christ, rejects his word, is a person that has determined through their sinful nature they will have nothing to do with Christ. And they glorified him not, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's what the world does. It gets darker and darker and darker until that time when Christ will come. Oh, these are glorious words. Let's finish with this. A love that is known. We've thought of a glory given. We've thought of a perfection made. We've thought of a love known. The love that's known by his people. Do you know that today? If you're a child of God, you're loved. You're loved with an everlasting love. You may not have had parents that loved you. But Christ loves you with an everlasting love. What kind of love? The same love that the Father had for the Son, 
That's the love that I know. Loved with an everlasting love. That's what we know this morning. Loved by the Father perfectly and loved by the Son through his finished work. A love known. Do you know it? Do you know that love? If you know the Lord working in your heart, the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself, it's his work and his work alone will come, bow the knee, as thou hast loved me, so I have loved them, all of his children, all of his people, all those that he died for, all those that he prayed for in John 17. And he says, none have I lost. All will come to me and the Father will draw them. Let's sing our closing hymn.